Good morning. My name is Sandy Starr, and I work for the Progress Educational Trust. Uh, that's a charity that seeks to improve choices for people affected by genetic conditions or infertility. Um, and in just a moment, we'll be debating, uh, was it big data what won it, political campaigning today? Uh, obviously, information and communications technology is the focus of a lot of debate, uh, and one of the most controversial areas of that debate, which we're going to tackle head-on, is the relationship between uh, technology and politics. There's an awful buzzword, disruptive, uh, and there's a prominent body of thought uh, that says that today's disruptive technology uh, is what's helped give us today's disruptive politics. Uh, and according to that body of thought, uh, the dramatic outcomes of last year's EU referendum and last year's uh, e uh, US presidential elections, among other things, were attributable, at least in part, and I'm going to use a specialist technology term here, to shenanigans. <laughs> Big data shenanigans and unscrupulous and deceptive approaches to online political campaigning. And we're very lucky this morning to have some of the foremost advocates and some of the foremost critics of that view uh, here on the panel with us. I'm going to introduce them briefly in the order in which they're going to speak. Um, first, on my far right, uh, we have Carol Cadwallader, who's a feature writer at the Observer newspaper, uh, in which capacity uh, she has really been at the forefront of investigating this whole area uh, recently. Um, from your article last year, uh, entitled Tech is Disrupting All Before It, Even Democracy, uh, to this year's influential article, The Great British Brexit Robbery, How Our Democracy Was Hijacked, uh, Carol has investigated the influence on our politics and our everyday life of tech firms, social media platforms, shadowy big data companies, and so on. Next, on my immediate right, uh, we'll have Jamie Bartlett, whom some of you may have seen uh, yesterday at the festival uh, debating the, the alt-right. Uh, Jamie is director of the Centre for the Analysis of Social Media at uh, the think tank Demos. He's also the presenter of uh, the BBC Two series, Secrets of Silicon Valley, and author of the books The Dark Net and Radicals, Outsiders Changing the World. Then on my immediate left, we have Simon Cook, uh, who has the distinction of being both a professional politician and a professional marketer. Uh, as politician, he's leader of the Conservative Group in Bradford City Council. As marketer, uh, he was previously the account planning director at a leading marketing agency and remains a member of the Institute of Direct and Digital Marketing. Finally, on my far left, we have Timandra Harkness, a prolific broadcaster and journalist, a visiting fellow in Big Data, Information Rights and Public Engagement at the University of Winchester, and author of the book Big Data Does Size Matter. Uh, I think you'll agree we couldn't have a better panel to tackle this particular issue. They each speak for five to seven minutes in the first instance, and then uh, I'll bring in some points from the floor. So, Carol... Uh, to kick us off, can you tell us in brief why you're so concerned about the role of big data and related technology in our politics? Um, uh, yes, I, well, I hope to eventually um, over the course of this. So um, um, I started looking into all of this um, in the sort of dark days following um, Trump's election last year. And I, I, I discovered these very weird Google results 
and I found myself on the telephone with a, an academic in the US called Jonathan Albright, who was looking at fake news, but he was looking at it from this kind of big network level. And I was looking at it in this little level of kind of like looking at what results I was getting on Google for sort of contentious topics like the Holocaust on, and um, Jews and things. And he first uh, said this, um, the name of this company to me, Cambridge Analytica, and I'd never heard of them. And really kind of since then I've been looking into um, really what they're doing and what effect they had in the sort of um, the elections and the upsets that we've seen in the last um, year. And um, um, I, I, I don't know if anybody's heard of them here, if this is a completely new uh, name to you. Um, they were, it was the, they're a small sort of data analytics company and nobody'd heard of them, um, I think, a kind of year ago. Um, and it's, um, it's amazing to me that there is sort of growing awareness, I guess, about them. My mum rang me up and said she'd heard Hillary Clinton talking about them on the one show. So that had seemed to me like there was some sort of growing um, awareness. But the reason why I'm sort of so fascinated and why I wrote this morning in The Observer and I'm kind of beating the drum still is because in the US there are all these investigations into um, Trump and Russia and possible links between them. And the FBI and the Senate Intelligence Committee and the House Intelligence Committee and the Judiciary Committee are all looking at the questions around data and how Russians, the Russians knew who to target and was there possible collusion here or were there overlaps or what was going on. And this is a very serious sort of field of inquiry in the US. And in Britain, um, there's been very, very little. And, um, and yet we're kind of right at the heart of it because this company is a British company. And Nigel Farage is this character who very much sort of links between Trump and here. And, um, and I just think we, we, just, we, there, there, there are, there, we just need to just ask more questions about um, uh, how this technology is working and what is happening. And my kind of, my, I, I, my entry into it was just really to, to look at the money and to look at our campaign laws. And, uh, and keep it very, very simple. Because I think there's lots of things here which um, uh, people feel confused about. So we talk about algorithms and the way that they work and AI and all the rest of it. And so my, my real focus was on um, just, um, just, sorry, my, my real focus has been on just sort of like how the, the money works and the way that technology, his, uh, these new platforms that we have, have enabled money to be flow into politics and there's no way of tracking it. And that's the real sort of focus of concern for me. Um, so, um, I'm sorry, I'm just not... <laughs> you, you slightly threw me by asking me a question I wasn't prepared for. So, um, so, so sorry, I'm, I apologise for being all blurby and over the place. Um, I guess, so, so the, the thing that... The thing that I, when um, I started looking into Cambridge Analytica... The, um, the, I, I wrote about them, at first of all, in the, in the Observer, and we started getting letters from them, because I'd written that they'd worked in the Trump campaign and they'd worked in the Leave campaign. We started getting letters from them saying, we'd never worked in the Leave campaign. And I thought, this is really odd, because here I can see um, the, the CEO of Cambridge Analytica has said on record that they had worked 
for leave.eu, and leave.eu had said that Cambridge Analytica had worked for them. So I was kind of completely confounded at this. And eventually I went off and I met leave.eu's comms director, and he said, yes, they did work for us, but they, we didn't pay them. They just helped us. And so I was kind of like, hmm. And that was when I rang the Electoral Commission. And I said, well, if somebody just helps a campaign, is that a donation? And they said, well, yes, that's a donation. That's services in kind. And I was like, well, does that have to be declared? And they said, yes, that does have to be declared. And, and, um, and it wasn't. And that's really what it comes down to. So that now is under investigation by the Electoral Commission. It's an impermissible donation because it's owned by an American and it's uh, incorporated in America, this company. And so that is American money which has gone into um, a British election. And we have laws against that. And so that is, we don't know the outcome of that investigation yet. And then the other thing which happened was that the Information Commissioner's Office also... Um, said, well, what were they doing with data? Because we have strict laws about this in Britain. And, and it's not America. You can't just hoover up data and use it in any way you want. We have controls, particularly about political um, data, that's classed as sensitive. So they've also launched an investigation into that, and we don't know the results of that yet either. But there's, there's, that's just, that was just the sort of beginning, really, of, um, of the questions around this. And I shall, uh, I shall wrap up. But the, um, this isn't... I, I think there's people say, well, uh, don't all campaigns do this? Don't all politicians do this? Everybody's doing stuff with data. But I think there is a, there is a difference here. There's, there's a difference between doing things in the light and open and being able to track that. And there's a difference between doing it covertly and um, not declaring it and not knowing what's going on. And um, this isn't some little fancy kind of tech startup. Um, this company. It comes from a military background. It was spun out of a company which had got 30 years experience in selling this technology to militaries around the world um, using covert means to influence people in ways they don't understand. And that seemed, to me seems very troubling. I don't think military technology, which governments have developed and paid for, should be anywhere near elections. I think that's a very different thing. So, um, I'm sorry for... Um, been very unfluent there, but no, that's fine. <laughs> I'll come back to it. No, that was very useful to get us started. Uh, Jamie, you've spent a lot of this year investigating the secrets of Silicon Valley. So, what's your take on this? Um, yeah, and before that, actually, I, I mean, I, I sort of I've done a lot of work at Demos as well, looking at the different ways in which political movements use social media. So, I, I came at it, I suppose from a slightly different angle uh, to Carol. I think that it's important, firstly, to make a distinction between establishing what actually happened, and that's, of course, a lot of Carol's work and some of mine with that TV show, and I'll explain what I think happened. And, and, and that was really important just to establish the facts because a lot, we didn't really, understood, I really did, didn't really understand how Cambridge Analytica or Facebook worked with the Trump campaign. And then as a separate question, what effect did it actually have? I mean, did it make a difference? And the answers aren't necessarily the same because a group like Cambridge Analytica will of course say, oh, it made all the difference in the world. We did win the, basically we won the election for Trump. And guess what? Um, we're also selling our services for other people as well. So look how incredibly effective they were. I'm absolutely certain that Cambridge Analytica's business has been thriving 
since all of this because they looked like the, the evil masterminds behind an unlikely election victory, so obviously everyone wants a piece of it. Now, what actually happened? Um, to be very brief, what we sort of tried to establish um, in the secrets of Silicon Valley was that the Trump campaign set up, as every campaign does, a sort of digital center, digital operations out of San Antonio in Texas, which was very well staffed. I went into their building, I and mean, it was empty when I went in there, but it's very well staffed, and they put a huge amount of effort into their digital campaigning, as you would expect, Hillary Clinton did the same. Um, they worked with Cambridge Analytica, who had developed a, a sort of, ver through various sources of data, a way of trying to better understand the uh, likely sort of attributes and interests of millions of Americans. The key thing that was at stake for us was did they use a particular type of data analytics, which is called psychographics or psychometrics, in the way they profiled American voters? They seem to have denied that they did for some time. Um, and psychographics, if you don't know, sorry, I should probably explain, is, is trying to work out not just likes and preferences, like, oh, this person likes American football and, and barbecue, so they're more likely to vote for Trump, but, like, the extent to which you can determine someone's personality traits on a well-established sort of psychometric score of these five big personality domains, openness and conscientiousness, very long-established thing in psychology, and the extent to which they created a model which measured Americans' sort of deeper personalities and then used that to target messages based on their personalities. That was the key thing for us. It's still actually a little bit unclear um, uh, Alexander Nix said to me, the CEO of Cambridge Analytica, that they had used legacy data from the um, Cruise campaign in which they did use psychometrics in the Trump uh, campaign, but they didn't recollect new types of psychometric data for the Trump um, campaign. So it's a little kind of unclear exactly what he was trying to get at there, I suppose. But, al but also, um, it's clear that they did play an important role in the in the in the. Trump campaign and that Facebook and, and Google also were in the building in, in San Antonio, Texas, working closely with both Cambridge Analytica and the Republican Party at, to provide the platform by which they could then target those adverts at people and were paid a, a rather large sum of money for that. So, the, so that's basically what I think happened. Did did, did it work? Did it make a difference? That's where it gets far harder to establish. I mean, how do you ever determine whether any adverts work in political campaign? It's, it's always been very di difficult. And did big data win it? Well, you're going to say no, but the emails were what won it. No, but the frustrations of millions of Americans won it. No, but Hillary Clinton was the wrong candidate. That's what won it. I mean, we're never going to truly know what was the key thing that really mattered. But what we do know is that the Trump administration or the Trump campaign believed strongly that it was the key for their success that they were suddenly able to target lots more people in very different ways, very effectively. They felt it made the difference in a tight election, especially when you consider they lost the, they lost the popular vote, but they won in the places that mattered. And they credit that to being able to target people far more effectively. Now, obviously, Cambridge Analytica are going to say that they made a difference as well, so you can almost discount that. But the fact is that people within the, the Trump administration think that it did too. Um, but I'm interested as well uh, in the future, because whatever we 
can finally fully establish whether in America or related to, to Brexit or whether we can actually determine the extent to which it has made a, a sort of critical difference in, this, in these events. Um, it's not going to I mean, it's not going to go away. I, the, the, to me, the future of political campaigning is going to be online. It is going to be using big data. People are going to argue over its effectiveness. But the direction of travel is that it, it is going to get better. Machine learning technology is getting better. It's far from perfect. You can always find crap adverts that you can say, oh, that proves it's rubbish and the algorithms are useless. But it is improving quickly. More and more of it is going to be about trying to determine your unique personality traits and types and interests and thoughts and worries and cares. That will be driven in advertising and it will be picked up in politics. And that's what's happened so far. And when you look at the amount of work that is going into this at the moment in the private sector, it is going to shift into politics. And when we, as we estimate in sort of four years time, there's going to be 20 times more data points than there are now about all the different things that we do. And we're going to start getting adverts based on what our smart fridge has told someone we just ate. And we're going to be able to work out, well, this person's hungry at the moment. And when you're hungry, you're much more likely to be right wing because blah, 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 blah. So you know, <laughs> there's going to be all these amazing and interesting ways in which we will be trying to be understood by advertisers and politicians and will be targeted on that basis, which is one reason why it is extremely important to do the sort of work that Carol does to try to actually understand who's doing it, who's controlling it, and where's the money coming from. Thank you very much. So, our politician stroke marketer, do you agree? Do you call shenanigans? Uh, I guess I represent all the axes of evil in this one. <laughs> I, I, I'm a qualified Conservative Party agent. Um, I'm a professional marketer specialising in direct and database marketing, and I'm also a politician. Um, and I'm going to tell you that big data didn't win it. Um, and more importantly, that actually, and, and it's been already hinted at here, that actually Cambridge Analytica and one or two other companies aren't actually sending anything that's really earth-shatteringly new or different. Um, it's actually a pretty bog-standard set of anal analytics tools that's just been rebadged as political. Now, database marketing is brilliant. Um, we can take large data sets and we can apply them to usable population geographies, and they don't necessarily have to be uh, or, other or other kind of virtual geographies. In the UK, we could use, for example, postcode sectors can be 2,500 to 3,000 people. So when Cambridge Analytica tell you they've got a profile for every community in the USA, which they do tell you, they are simply describing, more or less, the use of these well-established geographic demographic techniques. That's essentially what they're doing. And it's what they sell. Uh, it's, funny enough, what we were selling to UK financial services companies, mail-order businesses, retailers and others back in 1990. Um, uh, and uh, all that's happened is we have a lot more data and we've got our faster tools, but the techniques and the methods that are being used really haven't changed hugely since that time. Um, more importantly, and this is where the clever bit comes in, we can match the profiling information that we have, um, and you know, Jamie's already referred to some of that, um, uh, to our own data. Um, and in the case of a political campaign, this would be voting intention information, So, which is when you, someone's knocked on your door and say, are you going to vote for us? And you say yes or no. That, uh, that provides me with a starting point. Um, and this tells us where our voters live, and more important, where voters with similar characteristics to our voters live. Um, so we might have lots of voter information data for Tories across the country, 
um, but none in Walsall. Um, uh, what the profile does and the system does is allow us to, at a very localised level, um, to say where we're going to find those voters in Walsall. Uh, in, in the nub of it, that's what they're doing uh, at Cambridge Analytica. It's just got lots of fancy words and they've begun to link it to online activity. The big change, of course, that's happened is the use of social media uh, information. And uh, overlaying this data maybe makes that granular geographical targeting a little bit more effective. Uh, I, I'm not convinced, but I think. Um, the bit of software that Cambridge Analytica uses, they, they claim to be able to draw a, some kind of psychographic um, profile um, from, and we were using psychographics back in 1990, 1991, so again, they're not particularly new, um, uh, from Facebook likes and texts. And again, I'm not convinced, especially since most of our activity on Facebook involves like saying lol a lot, going or at cat pictures and liking our friends' baby photos. And whilst I'm sure that's going to tell you everything you need to know about my personality, um, you know, I do think actually the, the, these things. And just to give you an example of the problems with this kind of, uh, this kind of analysis, the psychographic analysis, here's one which is taken from a review in the technology blog, blog The Register. Um, and they took the first thousand words of uh, Theresa May's Brexit speech from January. Um, and that generated a 67% openness rating, making her liberal and artistic rather than conservative and traditional, and a 99% score on her being a man. Um, um, the truth is that social media data, I know there's loads of it, and we can scrape it from all over the places, and that's what this been there, is really dirty. Um, and I don't just mean it's got rude words in it. Um, uh, what the clever techie folk claim is a long way, I think, from the reality. Because regardless of the amount of information you've got, if you have rubbish data, you get rubbish outcomes. And I think one of the questions I would have is that a lot of the outcomes are poor. Facebook does allow us to target advertising at a granular level, and I think that's one of the real strengths and why they work closely with, with Facebook and linking to the, the, the Cambridge Analytica stuff. Um, but it means that I can target high score communities on my things using uh, Facebook's advertising systems. Um, and it means that a lot, if you're outside my profile, you don't see my advertising. So, and, and, I, and I think there's real concerns about that. Uh, I don't think there's a sinister conspiracy. Uh, does it work? Yeah, but it's not a silver bullet. Back in the day, we reckoned on two times or three times uh, uplift compared to a random selection from, from, from this kind of stuff, which is great until you realise that the response to a random selection was about 0.2%. So all that clever technology means that instead of getting ignored by 998 out of 1,000 people, I only get ignored by 994 out of 1,000 people. So you, know, you need to recognise that it, it, it's not as... Uh, so I don't think... There are concerns, and I, I absolutely buy the, you know, don't do it secretly, declare election expenses, do all the other kind of stuff. And what Carol's doing is absolutely spot on to ask serious questions about the way in which these things are being used. But I don't think there's actually anything particularly new, and I don't think it's why we won, uh, why, uh, why the, the outcomes were. <laughs> well, vote leave. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I've got five things which I think are the things that matter in political campaigns. And I'll turn. One, brand. Vote Leave got really lucky because somebody, I don't know, a journalist or something, coined the term Brexit and gave people something real to vote for. Um, the same, uh, also, 
in the, the Trump campaign, if you look at the Democrat campaign material, all they did was talk about Trump. They bigged up his brand. They pushed out his brand. And funnily enough, my party did exactly the same this year. We ran a campaign that was all, all entirely based on May or Corbyn, and so we did the Labour Party's job for it by promoting their leader and making him an equivalent of ours. Call to action is really important. One of the most important things why I leave one was because they said take back control. Um, and they gave people a simple call to action. You go to a, a, a pony booth and you put an X in that box, you will take back control. It doesn't matter whether we think that's right or not, that was a really powerful message. Funny enough, I think drain the swamp was a similarly powerful message to an important uh, demographic in America. Um, and I think if I was to look up the words that the Labour Party used th this year as well, you'll find similar powerful messages that appeal to a particular demographic. The third thing is enhanced word of mouth, going viral, if you want. I have a sneaking suspicion, and, and although the Russians may have been involved in this, I don't know, that thousands of little green frogs, with all the memes and comments that went with those frogs, were probably more important to Trump's campaign than Cambridge Analytica. Um, and the same, really, when we look at vote leave, and when, also when we look at Corbyn this year and the, and the momentum stuff each year, we see lots and lots, thousands of people creating and sharing memes themselves and using social media to, 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 um, uh, in, to create their own political messages, if you like, using the tools that are being given to them. Good targeting, we've talked that, ma that matters. doesn't have to be geographically. Again, Corbyn demonstrated that by targeting a demographic, young people. And that was a really, really powerful and effective way. But finally, and we've said this thing, and I can talk extensively about this, one of the main reasons why Vote Leave won and why Trump won was because their opponents run truly dreadful campaigns. Um, and funnily enough, um, uh, uh, Theresa May was only saved by the fact that she started such a long way ahead of Corbyn because she also ran a really dreadful campaign. Um, targeting matters, and absolutely the stuff around fake news matters. That really bothers me in some ways much more than the ana data ana analysis stuff. But data, big data didn't win the elections. There's no sinister conspiracy, just a set of circumstances, good branding, viral social media, strong calls to action, and awful opposing opposing campaigns that allowed the results we got. Targeting helps. But if we'd not seen the brand, the message, and the memes, plus those useless campaigns, stronger in, and Hillary Clinton would have won. Thank you. So summing up crudely, the answer to the question, was it big data, what won it? So far, we seem to have the answers uh, yes, maybe, and no. Um, Tim Andrew, you literally wrote the book on big data. <laughs> what do you think? I, I've come through quite an interesting little journey on this one because I, way back when I, way back, like two and a half years ago, whatever, when I started writing the book, there's actually, there's a whole chapter in the original book about data and democracy, and a lot of it is about my worries about the turn that democracy was taking uh, and the role that data was, was playing in that, which I'll come back to. And then, of course, over the course of, course of the book coming out and then me having to write an entirely new chapter for the paperback, because that's what happens when you write a book about a fast-changing subject. Uh, we had the Leave campaign and Trump won and the, the beginnings of, the, of this election that's just happened in, in Britain. And, uh, and I, I slightly shifted my, not what I actually believe about it, I suppose, but my stance on, um, is, this, is it just not on? I, maybe I should turn it on. How's that? Is that working now? 
think it's working. I think I just hadn't turned it on. Sorry. Okay. Did you hear any of that? <laughs> okay. Good. Um, so it's not. It's not that I've kind of changed my view on what actually happens and um, how it works, but perhaps on uh, how it's how it's discussed. Maybe I'm just changing relative to other discussions. So you, it, I mean, I think the work that Carol is doing is fantastic because it, I, you know, it's really nice if someone is doing investigative journalism and. Mm the kind of the, the role that data plays in political campaigns and the way that political campaigning has changed over a long period. I mean, I really think that the, most of the changes predate the current technology, uh, and, I, and I don't think they're good. And so I think it's good that people are talking about those. I, I disagree probably with a lot of Carol's conclusions, but I think it's really important that this information is out and being argued about. So what what is new about the big data approach? I actually, in the course of, of writing the revised chapter, I found a marvellous publication by O'Reilly Media about big data and democracy, which, in which basically lots of people who work for mainly Democrat campaigns say exactly how it works and how they use it. Uh, and, um, and, and there was one really, really nice little summary by a guy called Daniel Scarvaloni, who works for Bully Pulpit International, which is a, a digital campaign that works mainly for democratic causes, and he, and he gives a three-point guide. He says, let the audience be your guide. Define the precise audience you want to reach using analysis of all the data you've got on them, and then have strategies matching the consumption and behavioural patterns of that audience. I mean, this, I think, is it's new in the sense that you actually can go and find their Facebook data and see what they like, and they will be able to let their fridge tell you exactly what brand of milk they prefer, and are they concerned about organic food and that kind of thing. It's not entirely new. I mean, I don't know who here is old enough to remember the phrase Mondeo Man, mm -hmm. uh, that there's a, a Conservative Party election campaign that specifically focused on this idea of aspirational working-class man who aspired to be driving a Mondeo, which is a Ford, large Ford car, and, and they worked out that they wanted a campaign that would appeal to that kind of aspirational working-class man. Mondeo Man, and, and so you might have said Mondeo Man won whatever election it was, I forget. Um, but obviously the, the ability to do that very precisely targeted individuals is unprecedented because all the campaign, and he later on says, oh, well, you know, what we do is we, we go to people like Axiom and Experian who collect all the market research survey data that you will have carelessly given out every time you sign up for free Wi-Fi somewhere or fill in a market research survey and somebody there is collecting that and politicians can access that so they, they know about you in quite a lot of detail. Number two, tailor the creative. So write material that appeals to these particular people that you're targeting, the people whose votes are going to be crucial to you winning this thing. And here's an interesting phrase, he says, instead of speaking to everyone with one megaphone. Now this is where I actually start to think this is something we should worry about because Okay, you know, megaphones are a bit of a joke of maybe 70s and left-wing campaigning. Maybe I'm showing my age here, but the point of a megaphone is that you talk to everybody with one message, that you try and win people to one big message. You know, we're, we're talking about the 100-year... Well, we sorry, <laughs> ironically, I'm talking about megaphones. Um, <laughs> we're talking about the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution, and that's all, you know, people with, with trumpets churning bread, peace, and land, and trying to appeal to lots of people, and having one one message that sums up your political vision that you're trying to draw people to. Whereas targeting your message uh, in the way that um, Jamie described, where, where you 
you, you can go to somebody's Facebook profile and just show them that advert. And, and as yours said, you know, other people don't see the advert that you see. Well, what happens to your political principles then? You can, you can show, uh, you know, people like my extended family in Lincolnshire, you can campaign for British jobs for British workers. Uh, metropolitans like me in London, you can big up your anti-racist multicultural credentials and you can be the same party. So, you know, what exactly are you standing for? So that, I think, is something worrying. Although, I mean, again, it's not actually new. The Labour Party were using focus groups to write their, their policy things way back in, um, in the 20th century. But I, but I think the technology does allow them to do that in a way that is much more precise and, and much more opaque. That, and I know there are, there are kind of campaigns to try and find out what ad different people get to see. But, but I think that is worrying. And third, he says, don't just measure how much, measure how well. And, and that is absolutely standard. You know, the old joke about only 50% of my advertising spend works. Problem is, I don't know which 50%. Well, now you do know which 50% because you've done an A-B test and you've put out different versions of the same advert or even different colours of the same hat. And you literally follow how many people click through. And... You know, and you could say, well, that's just that's just better advertising. It's just more efficient advertising. That's certainly how these professionals see it. And it's certainly, again, it's not unique to voting. The, there's a thing called, popularly called the nudge unit, the behavioural insights unit that was spun out from government. Um, and they wanted to increase the number of people signing up to the organ donor register, which is a cause that I very much support. And the way they did it was, if you go online to do something to do with your driving licence, you uh, you will see messages saying, you know, are you an organ donor? You can click this to get more information or sign up. And they tried eight different versions of that message to see which one got the most people to click through and sign up. And and the one, the winning one, which is the one that you might like to see, is if you need an organ transplant, would you have one? If so, please help others. And they've estimated they'll get 96,000 extra donors a year by doing that. What's the problem with this? Well, the problem is, I think that. It's basically, it's using behaviourism to address voters. So it's treating politics as something where you have a stimulus response. You, you, you give people the right stimulus, you get the response you want, you get the vote. Look, when you want to win a vote, you want to win a vote and you campaign and you do whatever it takes to get into power. We know that. That's always been what politics is about. But I think it's a really retrograde step to say, well, we can just use behaviourism, we can just use numbers, we can get people's data, we can profile them, we can feed them the stimulus, we can test which stimulus works, and we can get the votes we want that way. Because that treats us like animals in a maze. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, I actually, I don't think it was big data what won it, I'm finishing, uh, I don't think it was big data that won it, because I, I do actually think that there is more to us than that. And I think... The number of surprise votes we've had lately shows how hard we are to profile and predict and control. And I think there is a kind of, there's a stubborn rationality in human beings, which is what makes democracy work. That when it comes to important things, we actually will think and make decisions based on our own priorities. Uh, and, and that's why I think that to kind of too readily say, oh, well, they are, that explains these, these surprise votes, it's big data and manipulation, actually kind of goes over to the same side, saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, people are just easy to manipulate, and if you hit them with the right message, they will respond the way you want them to. And if we really think that's true, then we might as well give up on democracy, but I'm not ready to do that yet.
So we've got a lot of different views there on uh, how new and how nefarious the use of big data in politics is. If it poses a problem, what sort of problem does it pose? Um, the panellists are going to want to respond to one another, but I will take a small number of points from the floor now before coming back to them. And just to say, everyone's agreed that uh, Carol is doing excellent work, <laughs> they, but, but they don't all agree with her conclusions. Now, a lot of people say that. I have seen more disobliging reactions to your work on the internet as well. So if anyone here is of that view, this is the battle of ideas, uh, you, you feel free to say so. Right, is it, would anyone, can I start down here, please, with the mic? Yes, please. Uh, thanks, that was really interesting. Um, I have two quick points. The first is, since this technology is not all brand new, the big question for me is why have we become so interested um, in the impact of social media and big data in the last couple of years? And it seems to me that it appeals to a certain group of people as an easy and simplistic way to explain electoral outcomes with which we're very surprised. And it, it helps us to avoid deeper reflection on the reasons why... Um, those outcomes happened. So the whole stuff around Russian bots and so on is a great way for the Democrats to avoid reflecting on the failures of the Democratic Party over decades. The second point is um, to think about social media as media. And uh, there was a very, very long article in The Atlantic recently about the way that Facebook had been manipulated by the Trump campaign. And it boiled down to Trump, said, Trump um, campaigners saying, oh, well, we thought we managed to find a way for social media to work for us. But before Trump, everybody thought that Facebook and Twitter and the demographic changes favoured the Democrats. And the reason Tamandra found the information she did is they've been using this for ages. Now, what does that suggest? It means social media is it's a medium, right? It mediates things. It mediates things that are out there. It doesn't really change people's views. The research on media, newspapers, broadcasts and so on, in politics does not suggest that people read the media and then are bamboozled or change their mind and go out and vote things. It suggests there's a much more complex interaction between what people print and what people say in the media and people's behaviour. It's the sun what won it. That's what we were saying in 92. The research, the research shows it wasn't the sun what won it. Actually, people consume media with which they already agree. And the behaviourist approach that Tamandra is talking about is it's triggering existing behaviours and attitudes. It's not trying to change them. Old-fashioned campaigns that actually try to win people over to a different point of view still have a chance of succeeding, I think. Fantastic. Can you just pass it behind you there? Uh, yeah, I should say my name's Daniel Ben. I mean, I'm speaking at four o'clock in this strand uh, on Silicon Valley from heroes to zeros. And this, what I want to say, kind of links to links the two strand, uh, strands. Uh, sorry, two sessions in this strand. Uh, I've, and it's following on from the point made before, the first point, which I very much agree with. Uh, because it, it seems to me that What's really happening is that the influence of the media and the new social media is being exaggerated and the political factors are being understated. So in other words, Hillary Clinton is a real perfect example of this. She couldn't understand why she lost the election. She blames everyone else but Hillary Clinton. And the American establishment more generally, and I think this relates to the point Carol made about all of these investigations, they're just completely thrown at this, you know, weird Donald Trump character has won the election uh, and the uh, old uh, elite you know, just didn't win. So, you know, you can imagine it's like someone who is a kind of really aloof 
uh, nasty person who goes around condemning people as deplorables, but then they don't understand why people dislike them. You know, it's just uh, it's the fault of the other people. They don't look to themselves and see that there's good reason that people see them as aloof and elite and out of touch. All right, and I'll take one more point down here, and then I'll go back out to the floor in a minute. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about how when Donald Trump said, I love the uneducated, and it seemed at the time such a shocking, patronizing, absolutely ridiculous thing to say, but I'll, I think it was fed to him clearly by big data telling him that here's a huge swathe of the population that, you know, you can get these right-wing people that want right-wing Supreme Court justices and want, you know, anti-abortion people, and you can get the right-wing conservatives that just want tax cuts, but that's not enough to win it. But there's this huge swathe of uneducated people, and he was so crude about it. He didn't even try and be clever, and he just said something that was so shocking and I think that won him the vote. And I think that Hillary and all her Nate Silver and all these people, it just went right by them. It didn't even occur to them that, not that he's clever in any way, but somebody fed him a very strong line that everyone else was shocked about, but somebody knew what they were doing with that. That's okay. There's a lot on the table. I'll take a much larger round of questions in a moment, but first, the speakers can respond to those points or to one another. Um, Carol, do you want to come back? <coughs> yes, I would. <laughs> um, so there's some brilliant points being raised, and actually I agree with a lot of um, Brexit, the brand, for example, and what you were saying about the behaviourist approach, and um, the stuff you were saying about how these kind of like easy explanation, it, it, it prevents you from looking at the deeper issues. I think those are all completely true. However, it does not mitigate against the fact that there are these massive platforms Facebook um, is valued at half a trillion dollars and its power is beyond anything we've ever seen before. Google similarly. And they work in completely opaque and untransparent ways. We do not know how, how they work, how they're functioning, how they're serving results to people. And there is no way of knowing. We have no access to it. They're private companies. There's no regulation. And the thing that, the sort of, um, that, that, that I feel about it is it's just fundamentally undemocratic. The fact that we don't know what happened in the election, we don't know what adverts people saw, we don't know who paid for them, we don't know, um, we don't know how many of them were, we don't know who was targeted. And these are just all really vital questions, and it is the first time in our political history that that's been true in recent years. We, that, that we, the, the whole idea of, of our politics is we have parties, they come up with policies, these are debated in public, and then people go to the polls. And, then, and that is the thing which has completely changed. It's now all happening in darkness. And that, I think, is fundamentally the problem of this. And that's the, the fact that these adverts aren't archived, academics can't see them, there's no accountability, and they are lost forever. We can't get those adverts out of Facebook because in this country there is no pressure by the politicians to ask them and to come and be accountable. Now, in America, that is now just changing. Mark Zuckerberg is being called on November the 1st. He's going to, his chief counsel is going to stand in front of the Senate Intelligence Committee and have to answer some of those questions. And I think it's kind of like, I think it's just this very British sort of attitude, actually, that we're just sort of, 
um, we don't like to make a fuss or something, or, um, or, 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 or it's all sort of like, oh, it's these conspiracies. And, um, um, and, you know, I get this leveled at me so often that this is a kind of, like, oh, it's just some conspiracy. And, and it's just, um, um, but it's, it's about money. It's about money. It's about influence. And it's just about accountability and transparency. And that's why I kind of get on my hobby horse about it, because we don't have it. We, we don't have accountability and we don't have transparency. OK. Um, uh, I'll, I'll let you come back on what you like, Jamie, but I would note, I think your most vigorous head shaking came when Simon was talking about social media being, uh, uh, much of it being made up of lol and cat pictures of little political, <laughs> yeah. and that's of little political utility. I get the sense you disagree. I do disagree, but I, 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 was, I was shaking my head about the, the, the description of um, psychographic research, because it's not as you suggest, it's not actually based purely on looking at people's likes and lol cats and then trying to build a profile. It's, what Cambridge Analytica did was to directly survey um, thousands upon thousands of people with a standardised psychometrics test um, and then try to, using machine learning, determine the correlations between their likes and all the rest of it uh, on to the results of that test from which they could then try to determine the likely personality traits of other people that had not taken the test but who had similar profiles, which is a bit more sophisticated, I think, than simply uh, trying to look at what people have posted. And, that's, and, and, I, and I think it is going to continue to improve. I, granted, it's not as good as it could be, but I think it's a little better than you think it is. Now, I, the, to me, there's, a, there's always... A, I mean, it, it goes without saying that if you, if you don't have a good message and you don't have a good brand, you don't have a good leader, none of this big data stuff is really going to matter. All of those things, of course, are going to be more important than the specific ways in which you target people. But it doesn't mean that it's not potentially um, important when it's a close election. And every single election round has seen, between Democrats and Republicans, improvements each time in this kind of ongoing war of how they try to target people. And it's, it is an arms race between them. And I think the use of big data is the latest in, in that. There is, to me, it's, it's as dangerously lazy, I think, to say there's nothing new under the sun as it is to say everything's changed and we've never seen this before. Clearly, there has been a dramatic change in the way that media is produced and consumed and how people can be targeted. Absolutely remarkable if you looked 10 years ago what sources people trust, how they consume their news, how they make their political decisions, the total collapse of trust in various institutions. These are pretty big things. It would be remarkable if that did not have a serious political consequence. And we can potentially get confused between the, what we're, the terms we're using here. Big data as a specific form of voter identification and targeting is one thing. But the, sort of the generic ways in which big data companies are influencing and changing our elections is not necessarily quite the same thing. The latter, I think, is having profound effects. The English Defence League was a Facebook group. It had a small militant wing that sometimes demonstrated in the streets. It was a Facebook group. It would never have existed without Facebook. The alt-right would never have existed without 4chan. The complete disintermediation of our media has fundamentally changed things. And it, without Facebook, if Facebook didn't exist, I don't think Donald Trump would have 
won the election. I will throw in an example. Let these two come back and then take a big round of questions. Um, there's a live example. We're looking back at Brexit. We're looking back at the Trump, uh, the US presidential elections. Facebook has just recently um, experimented with changing where it parks its uh, p p news stories that people post and putting them in a different part than the news feed where you have to take a bit more effort to find them. And it's road testing this in six small countries. Uh, so the, the newspapers, the, the media organizations in those countries have seen their web traffic stats change overnight. One of those six countries is Slovakia. Slovakia has regional, regional elections coming up in two weeks, and everyone there is going, what the hell, Facebook? You've completely changed the playing field. Um, to whom is Facebook beholden? That's an interesting question, I think, for, for us to throw in here. Um, but Timandra and Simon, would you, would you like to come back briefly on that or on anything you've just heard? Yeah, j just uh, a couple of points. I agree with the guys here talking about the fact that... that actually social media is a medium and we need to think of it in, as, uh, in, in those terms rather than in, term, in, 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 in the more kind of scare quotes way in which we tend to think about these things. On the question of, on the question of what or whether they the fundamental principles of advertising, how it works and how it things haven't changed. Uh, the means by which we put that in front of people changes and has changed over time. Political campaigns, I'll give you an illustration of this. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's trite, but it's very important to understand how campaigns change over time. Um, uh, the 1970 general election was the first general election that was cut televised in colour. Um, and it's really quite important because William Whitelaw, who was then the uh, senior cabinet minister, if you like, appeared uh, on TV on election night with a lovely and splendid and delightful rosette. It was red. Um, because in his constituency in the Northeast, the conservative colour was red. Um, prior to the TV age, there, there was no national campaign for, in politics. Each of those individual, however many there were, the 650 now, there were fewer of them, were individual campaigns by individual pe people. They had hints. So the idea that the message that was being put out by the um, uh, Conservative or Labour candidate in, 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 in Oldham was the same as in Westminster uh, uh, or, or, or in um, Bognor Regis, uh, it simply wasn't the case because they didn't, they all set their own campaigns. So we need to understand that the fragmentation of, we, we went into an age of mass media, we're coming out of an age of mass media back to a, a, an age much more similar to the one that went before that. So I do think we need to understand um, that. One last point, if I may. Very quickly. Um, as, a, as a marketer, I really, really would love all this stuff to work. I mean, trust me, I really, really, when we were selling it, yeah, we, we, we said it was brilliant, it would change anything. I know the reality is it helps, but it's a long way from being that silver bullet that, that, that some people, especially the people selling it, like to hint. Timandra, it seems that Janus-faced politicians are getting found out now. You know, Trump says yeah. one thing in Mexico, one thing in the States. People draw attention to that. Theresa May on the campaign trail does a terrible job, and people are reporting these local stories. Does that contradict the sort of way you've posed it? Well, yeah, I mean, there is the, the flip side of the social media is that nothing is secret anywhere, and, and it's the kind of panopticon, except we're all filming ourselves on our phones, and and somebody says something in a private fringe meeting and someone else films it on their phone and it, and it goes viral. So I suppose you could say that is a way of counteracting the deliberate fragmenting of the audience. I mean, it, it, I think Jamie's right to say social media replacing traditional media to a great extent, it, 
it does change the landscape, and, and the technology does change the landscape. It changes what's possible. But I'm always wary of looking at the technology to both explain what has happened and to give us what we should do in the future to change things. Because I think we have to ask ourselves, what's, what is it that the technology is solving? What's the question that it's answering? And I think the, the politicians losing touch with people and failing to inspire us and convince us with their campaigns predates the technology. And to a great extent, the technology is is filling this need that campaigners and politicians have to connect with people. That the, the idea that you would have gone out and people would have been a member of a trade union or a, or a church or a local party and you'd go and talk to them and you'd go and knock on people's doors is completely outdated. So obviously you have to use social media. Now, it, that does change how things work. And I genuinely think that the, the understanding people through their data and the micro-targeting people and and you and treating them in a behaviorist way of saying what what can we show them that will make them click the button is is very retrograde and the technology makes that possible in a way that wasn't possible before but i actually i think it emerges from a changing idea of politics and what politics is i mean you may be right it may be that we have never actually fully embraced what mass democracy is which is that the masses of people have to get involved in democratic discussions and you have to convince masses of people that your vision of the future is the vision that that they should share. I mean it may be that we, we actually we haven't caught up yet with the fact that everybody has a vote and everybody should be involved. Uh, and that you know people were just pretending in the age of television campaigning. But, <laughs> but I certainly think that's something to aspire to. You know, how we how we work that with the technology is, is a really big, difficult question. I don't, I don't know the answer. I mean, the fact that Google and Facebook are owned by two massive companies in America and we don't understand how their algorithm works, I think is a much wider problem than just politics. Uh, but it, but I, think, I think it is a problem. I think the opacity of algorithms is, is a real problem and we should address it. Okay. Um, take lots of notes because I'm going to take a lot of points from the floor. Um, can I take this gentleman uh, on this side here in the T-shirt and the jacket? He's been very patient. Yes, please, and then I'll move around. Thank you very much for a very illuminating discussion. It's great to get some insights into what's going on here. But I'm afraid I'm still a bit lost, and I've got a very basic question for the panel, if you'll forgive me. I still don't really fully understand this process. Uh, you're observing Facebook profiles. Is this done at an individual level, or is this done as a group, say an age group or a, a geographical group? I, I just want you to explain, I, I want to understand the process. So you look at particular Facebook profiles, you analyze them in some way, and in what kind of way, and then you use it to construct a message that you send to that individual. Is that right? I mean, I just, just would like a bit more clarification on the actual mechanics of this process. To me, it's not very clear. Okay, we'll come back to that. Can I go to the gentleman in front of you, and then I'll go to the gentleman behind. Hi, thank you very much. Just a very quick question. Again, the sort of a bit of the discussion seems to be on the left and the right about whether this is a big difference on the on the right. It isn't, and it seems about the one point that Tamandra made, which is really really special about this big data, is that it introduces this ability for a feedback, so you can observe when someone clicks. And that allows you then to retarget this individual with another advert. And that seems to be very, very different about this type of advertising, that it allows greater manipulation of an individual through this feedback. So my question is, 
do, does the panel think this is really important and a very big difference with social media? Can you pass it down to the end and then I'll come behind? Yeah. I feel my question will be more incoherent than everybody else's. Um, one of the things that worries me is the type of data. Up to now, we've always had publishers who have sold adverts which have been clearly delineated and an advert is an advert or it's advertorial. We write advertorial at the top and we say what it is. We're also very clear about the nature of a newspaper. We're clear about what we buy. Now in Facebook, not only the things you're talking about, which is messages targeting people, but also our most trusted information, the information of our friends, for instance, is manipulated. So as an example, I have to use a millennial example because I'm too old to have my own. My daughter um, came home from work the other day very upset by the number of her friends that had been affected by the Me Too campaign. And she came home to her boyfriend, who she's been going out with for many years. They went to the same universities, the same type of schools, 850 friends in common. Their major differences in their Facebook would be one is a keen interest in cycling, the other in mm -hmm. art. He had two Me Too notifications. Mm -hmm. She had 32. So they extended it by asking their friends, absolutely all of their friends who were long-term couples had this disparity at a very basic demographic level. This is just male, female. Mm. This isn't anything else. But this is not targeted advertising data. This is effectively private data. Mm. So is Facebook a publisher? And is Facebook a publisher mm. of your data? And therefore, should they be considered by the same restrictions and laws that publishers have? Could you pass the microphone up here, um, just behind you, actually, a couple of rows. I'll just say before you start, the Me Too phenomenon, absolutely fascinating, slightly orthogonal to this session. No, no, but it's, a, it's, a, it's important because it's people giving really sensitive information, divulging it to the internet at large, and there's a session on it on one of the hot-off-the-press sessions today. Go on. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> one of the most fascinating um, sections of Tim Shipman's book on the kind of Brexit campaign is where he interviews Dominic Cummings. And you know, obviously, the mythology around Dominic Cummings is that he's this strategic genius, this kind of mastermind who you know, plays chess with one hand and reads Sun Tzu with the other while playing a game of poker <laughs> and can do it all backwards. And you know, he interviews him and he asks him about you know, how they came up with this, this famous bus slogan about the 350 million a week. And he sort of says, well, you know, what we did was we polled loads of people and we discovered they really care about money going to the NHS and they like money going to the NHS. And we discovered if we said 350 million, they really liked the idea of that going to the NHS, not going to the EU. And we tried it with 150 million and they weren't so scared about that. So we went for this slogan, 350 million a week to the NHS. And you hear it and you go, what a stupid kind of genius you are to, uh, <laughs> uh, to, have, to have come up with that. And what fools we are, in a way, to believe that that is a kind of work of tactical genius. And in many ways, you know, that's the sort of thing. It's a simple piece of political propaganda, um, which in many ways summarises the issue of the, of the Brexit referendum, of that there was no coherent movement or organisation behind it. And it was really the weakness of the Remain side that lost this in many ways. And, you know, that's the crisis we find ourselves in now. There's no coherence um, to it. You know, two years ago, Linton Crosby bestrode the world as a tactical genius um, for masterminding the Conservatives' 2015 victory. Now, a Goldsmith campaign and a May campaign later, he seems very small. And it's amazing how diminished these political masterminds appear um, when we look at the man behind the curtain. And so what's 
kind of striking you know to me is that this is this ju actually just ends up being a fixation on tactics and actually you know kind of so you know some people just use tactics well but it didn't really reveal the content behind things so actually should we be more looking at you know focusing on the questions of what made the politics of today possible and how these things came to about rather than looking towards the kind of tech as the as the trigger all right can i take um, a couple of people on this side. Can I take this lady here first? And I'll move a couple of rows back. Hi, thanks. Uh, I spent my whole career as a publisher, and I'd absolutely agree with, in terms of one of the com uh, comments that was made, I would see Facebook as an aggregating publisher. When we put something on the net, when we make a comment in social media, when we make a comment or post something on Facebook, we individually are publishing, whether it's to a private group or we've made that public. And Facebook is an aggregating publisher. And I, what they do do is make content available to you as an individual that you have demonstrated a kind of interest in. And so the more you look at that kind of stuff, the more likely you are to be able to get to see more of that stuff. What's interesting to me is if more organisations, more publishers, seek to use their content in that way. I've not seen newspapers doing that yet, but they could do. OK, I'll take two more points on this side of the aisle. Um, if you go up, this, yep, you, and then the person behind you. Yes. Hi. <clears throat> Sorry, um, I'm a teacher, so I spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to teach young people to live in the world that big data is creating and Facebook. And I suppose my just one point is maybe it's time we stopped treating media studies as joke shorthand for a comedy subject that has no rigour and made it front and centre and, and part of the national curriculum. Uh, I think sending kids out into the world without an understanding of the modern media is like sending, being in a tribal culture and not teaching your kids which plants are poisonous and which plants are food. Thank you. Okay, and then finally, I'll come back to the panel in a second, here, over here. Uh, Nico McDonald. I, I think both Carol and Jamie, to some extent, are getting the cart before the horse. I think they're seeing either big data or the media as being the thing which has caused this disintermediation. And I think there's a, the real problem is that politics has disintermediated, as Tamandra and others have, have indicated, and that's been reflected in the way in which we consume media um, both social media and more public media. And I think you then you know, then imagine that Facebook is creating this phenomenon rather than being a, an outcome of it. And if we do that, then we don't understand that there's a lack of big ideas, big messages, and so on. Now, I worked for an American senator in 1984 on his election campaign. We spent $13 million. That was a lot of money. It's a lot of money today for an election campaign. It was a lot then. We had PCs and databases throughout the offices. We were doing targeted marketing. So, but nobody was saying in 1984, you know, when Reagan won the election, I was working for the Democrats as it happened, that you know, databases have won the election. They recognized that you know, in Reagan's case, he had a better message than Walter Mondale. Uh, and in Bill Bradley's case, my senator, we had a better message than our opponent. And it seems to be bad faith that people whose political worldview really doesn't cut the mustard anymore are blaming technology in one way or another. Uh, and to Carol, I'd very much say, you know, what do you want to do? Should we just abandon democracy because it's not worth it anymore because Facebook's undermined it? Or should we be 
adapting these tools and using them for campaigns that are worth having. I, I, I can't see any logic to uh, where your argument is going. Okay, there's an awful lot on the table there. I'll let the panel come back briefly. Don't try and answer everything. Pick up on things that interested you, interested you the most. Then I'll take a final round of contributions from the audience. Um, who would like to step in? Are you on the spot, Carol? <laughs> Why not? So I don't think it's technology. I'm not blaming technology. I think it's, um, it's capitalism, in a way. It's our, it's our system of holding things to account. So my problem is, is that these global companies are not subject to any laws. That's my problem, really. So there is, no, there is nobody, there is no government, there is no body, there is no regulatory authority that knows what is going on inside Facebook, that knows what is going on inside Google and why we see the results that we see. And I thought your example about the Me Too thing was absolutely fascinating. So there you've got... Why, why would there be those stark differences between the news feed of these two people who are saying fundamentally kind of look the same, and yet the, 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 what they're seeing, their worldview of how that's being um, structured is completely different. And you can manipulate that. And so the thing I will just say to you about this, oh, does it work, doesn't it work, oh, it's all very well, is just that the answer I will give to you that is, is science. Because... We know that Facebook, what is seen in people's feeds has an effect because Facebook has measured this. It used peer-reviewed studies to see what difference it made. And the two big experiments here are where they, they tinkered around with people's news feed. They put them in two groups and they didn't tell these people. But they just, they, 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 what they discovered was that what they put in their news feeds had an effect upon their mental health, upon their view of the world. And that was, there was a, I don't remember if you remember this, it was a few years ago and there was a lot of outrage because people didn't realise that their moods were being manipulated by Facebook as part of this experiment. And the second thing was when Facebook, um, they, they, they experimented with what would be the effect of people, of, of a I went to vote um, badge on their page. And what would be the effect of just having that badge and then also seeing which other of your friends voted? And they, there is a significant impact that if you saw that all of your friends had voted, you were more likely to vote. And so Facebook, just with this tiny little experiment, could affect the turnout. And one of the big things we know about what's, um, uh, what happened in the Trump campaign and what they deliberately tried to do was to suppress voter turnout. And they said, they said before the election, we're, we're doing three different voter um, suppression um, campaigns. And, and that, I find, that, is that democratic? Is that, is that what we want? Um, so I'll stop there. OK. Simon. Uh, yeah, I, I, just as a start, I think we're not to, 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 to uh, start with recognising that Facebook and Google provide us with an enormous amount of utility. Uh, they are fantastic things that, give, that, that make our lives brilliant and better. And I think we should start with, with recognising that fact before we start bouncing up and down and talking about the evils of capitalism. Anyway, that wasn't what I was going to do. I wanted to add two things, I think. Oh, I've got th uh, one comment on Dominic Cummins and then two uh, more substantial things. Uh, I don't think Dominic Cummins is a genius. I think he was a very, very lucky man. Um, and as I pointed out, the, the, the Leave campaign won more by luck than judgment. Um, in fact, they lacked quite a lot of judgment. Uh, one of the big important things on it, though, was the Leave campaign was fragmented because they shut 
Nigel Farage out of the main campaign, and so we ended up with three, and I, that probably helped them. But I mean, anyway, that, 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 that's been. I would just like to comment about advertising, um, because actually the core of what we're talking about here, whether it's politicians or whether it's soap powder or whether it's uh, uh, whatever, is, is, is about advertising. Um, one of the, one of, one of the uh, terrible things about uh, 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 today is that people have been misled as to what advertising does and how it works. Um, uh, people like Naomi Klein have, have, have written whole books which are not based on any substantive evidence or anything like that. They're just a wholesale rant about the evils of advertising. Um, the reality is that advertising does not create demand, that advertising um, reflects the fact of our consumer society and is an essential and necessary part of communications. And uh, the second thing is it doesn't work nearly as well as we think it, uh, think it does. Okay. I'll stop. I wanted to say something about feedback. Can very, I say quickly, that? Yeah. very quickly, very quickly. And on, we, someone mentioned about feedback and about we go, And again, yeah, we, there's more of it, but having more doesn't make it better. We were using an analysis of responses and feedback in order to retarget and relearn things 30 years ago. Um, it was slower and more clunky sending uh, mag tapes to uh, 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 with couriers. But the same principle applies. So it, you know, let's not say, think that this stuff is new. Okay. We had a request for a simple explanation of how Facebook targeting yeah. works. Do you want to? Yeah, very, very simply, and this is way too simplistic, but obviously when you go onto Facebook, you are putting in a lot of information about the things you like and you care about, your date of birth. Facebook can then cross-reference that against other large data sets that have been collected about, for example, your shopping habits or you know, if you've got a Tesco club card or you know, sometimes sort of electoral data and other stuff, which can then be used for, Facebook, for someone to pay Facebook to say, I would like to target 16 to 24-year-olds with these broad interests for my adverts, please, and then Facebook will allow you to advertise against those people. That's the very, very basic thing. Um, just quickly, quickly on, on, on Nico's point, because we've had this kind of argument for a long time with the Arab Spring. Was it the like unbelievable repression or was it social media that caused it? Well, it wouldn't have happened without all of the oppression, yeah. but I don't think it would have happened in the way that it happened without the ability of people to connect with social media. So you can argue forever about what the underlying root causes of it were, but I think social media is very important. And Dominic Cummings said, by the way, as well, if you want to win elections, you shouldn't get strategists, you should get physicists. Because he really believed in the power of, of big data, and he thought it was extremely important. And so, it, the very and to me, all of this comes down to, in the end, new sources of unaccountable power, and the the importance of trying to shine a light on that. And when you change completely the way things work, new sources of power emerge. I love Google and Facebook as well, and I use them all the time. But you still have to be looking for those new sources of power because you need to expose them. Do you have a bite-sized contribution to Mandra before we go out again? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think I think Jamie's right to say. Look, it's you can talk about why and you can talk about how. And social media and technology and big data are how, and they increasingly are how. But but I think that comes back to the why. Why why do these votes come down to a few tens of thousands of people in very specific places? Because it, there are not strong ideas to sway people. Advertising does sway people. That's you know that's what it's for. I think as a, as an advertising person, you should be ashamed of yourself. Say it doesn't create demand. What's the point of advertising? It doesn't create demand. What's the it point of you advertising stuff to me if I don't go? Oh yeah, I didn't know I wanted that, but actually now I do. 
uh, you know, we are we're swayed by these things, and rightly so. But but the point is, we're not fundamentally swayed away from things that we have strong feelings about. Twitter thinks I'm a man, which is highly amusing and great for presentations on big data. It's constantly trying to sell me beard care products and gorgeous <laughs> uh, treatments. But I've, I have never yet bought a beard care product off Twitter because <laughs> I, I haven't got a beard and I, I don't need beard care products. So no matter how many times and how well and cunningly they target me with this stuff, I don't want it and I'm not going to buy it. So that's, that's the point. It's the important things. We, we make up our own minds. Okay. Um, can I take... I'm sorry, I won't take Nico again. Can I start at the back here on this side, gentleman with red hair? Yep. Um, you, and then I'll slowly move forward is what I'll do. Hi, oh, thanks. No, it was the guy behind you. Okay, you go first. Okay, sorry. Uh, anyway, so thanks. So, uh, you know, looking at the, you were talking about how the Facebook and social media may have sort of swung things. I don't know about the US, but in the UK, I remember looking at my range of friends. I mean, personally, I voted for Maine, but I have a lot of friends who voted, voted for Leave. And I looked at the messages, the things that people put on their Facebook profile from, for, for, for Leave, and it was very well written, constructed, but mainly emotional arguments. I think far more important than the targeting of voters on Facebook was the way the Leave campaign used it. Right? I think that's, it's much, much stronger. That said, I still think what Simon Cook said is right. There's a whole different variety of reasons why political campaigns work. And I think we don't need to get too obsessed with just one thing. That said, I agree with your point about being opaque. Sure, it's important to, to know who's paying for what. Okay, gentlemen, a couple of rows behind you. If we could keep the points brief now, that would be helpful. Sure. Go on. Uh, thanks. I um, just wanted to pick up on um, what Carol was saying about this Facebook study a few years ago. Um, it was an emotional contagion study which analysed, I think they looked at about 700,000 people and they decided, well, could uh, Facebook posts um, basically uh, emotionally uh, change the way that people think based upon uh, their exposure to other people's posts? And it was a hugely controversial study, as you alluded to, because they didn't tell people they were doing this. But it was also hugely controversial because the findings were basically a load of rubbish. Um, the p-values um, were... Uh, I think for positive correlation, there was a 0.003 p-value. For negative, it was even less, 0.001. And anybody who's taken kind of statistics 101 can tell you that that's basically insignificant. You can throw those results out the window. And um, really, I wanted to kind of pick up on what Simon was Quickly. alluding to and, and also Jamie in saying that, um, you know, yes, these, you know, uh, I would agree that there has, had be, has been a fundamental change in the media systems that we're looking at, but... Um, how big are those changes? How significant are they? And to be honest, I would posit that it's just too early to tell now. I don't think there's any way that we can uh, statistically analyse how big of an impact big data is having. Okay, moving down. Was there somebody down here on the other side? Okay, in that case, I'll move over here towards the front. Sorry to get you running around. <laughs> this gentleman here, I will eventually come to the front row, yeah. If you could pass that along. Um, I was going to move it slightly and say... Um, looking at the Millennium campaign in the way that I believe that that was really just a man, an app, and a lot of big data. And it wasn't the socialist worker that suddenly created 300,000 uh, members of Millennium um, over a two or three week period. Do you uh, mean momentum? <laughs> momentum? Momentum, sorry, momentum. not Millennium. I've <laughs> got Millennium's on the brain, everybody. Sorry about this. <laughs> um, and I, th I believe that there's also similar um, parallels that have, that have gone on in Europe in, this, in the Spanish political party. And the question really to the, to the panel was, did they think that something like this, where you have either a single issue 
um, that needs a, a, a ready-made political party and whether the jaundiced view on the existing political parties meant that actually using big data to create a group of like-minded people might actually be a good thing. Okay. There's a point in the very front row. Uh, gentleman in the very front row. Yep, you could have that. Who yeah, hi. Um, I've been uh, very, very active in ad tech for, for quite some time. And I just want to pick up on a couple of points. First of all, the, the amount of data collected, it's not about likes and lols. When you load a page and it's got the little like symbol on it, Facebook knows that you're there. You don't need to do anything. They record that. Um, so the amount of data that actually is being collected is huge. The ability to interpret the data is also completely different from what it was even just two, three years ago. Machine learning has made sense of that information to an extent that you, you never could have even just three years ago. Um, the next thing is that the scale of the reachable audience is, is unprecedented, and you can't micro-target unless you have a really huge audience from which to micro-target. So now micro-targeting is coming alive because the scale of the audience is massive. Um, and finally, the lack of verifiability. I mean, imagine you were an advertiser, and you could say anything you wanted about your product without anyone being able to check whether it was correct or not. Here there are only two products, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, leave, stay. You're trying to sway a very small number of people in a swing area uh, uh, in one direction or another, and you can say anything you want about that person, and no one can ever check it. Look at Pizzagate. So the combination of those factors is really what brings us all together and makes us a completely different landscape. Big data did do it uh, in, in, in a massive way, and I think the lack of understanding as to how this all works is the key point. Okay. Can we pass it to this um, lady here a, few, a couple of rows back? Um, hi, so I thought there were two similar ideas um, being discussed here. So one of them was whether um, advertising can change people's behaviors or their um, preferences or things that they want to do uh, versus the other one, which is whether it influences um, turnout and actual voting behavior. And I was wondering if you thought, um, like I do, that maybe it doesn't change people's innate preferences very much, but it does change whether they act on them. Okay, I'll take this point here, and meanwhile, can the microphone move over here? Yes. Please, go ahead. Yes, um, as a computer engineer, I'm very troubled by the fact that we keep speaking about the tools as if the tools have a will of their own. Mm -hmm. So, it's, it's, it, you have a very, very interesting question was asked about what, what question technology answers. Technology doesn't answer any questions, because as optimizing animals, this is what we do. We create better and faster and, and, tool, and better tools all the time. So my question is, why do we talk about how big data won, and we're not talking about how the progressive side of politics, like Hillary or Remain or whatever, is, consist is consistently failing to, to understand how these tools work and use them efficiently? <laughs> and ultimately, is it maybe the very progressive ideas themselves that are losing? Okay. Please. It was just about the bloke up there that said that um, he thought that the Brexit... Um, um, campaigning was very good but very emotional and it just made me think about how the way that people explain why people voted for Brexit in the same way that it, with Trump, lots of Trump voters um, I understand said they voted for him despite all his crass ideas about women and his, his, you know, his idiotic rants. So they voted against Hillary, they voted for a different reason than what people thought they were voting for and with Brexit as somebody memorably said um, at like the, the, this elite we have today is like, Os as Oscar Wilde said, they know the price of everything but the value of nothing. And that's why people voted 
leave because there is no price for sovereignty. And I think it, it, that confirms what Tamandra is talking about, which I think is our great guarantee, really, of what, why democracy is so important and why there's something inspiring about social media. People are so much more complicated than behaviorism can tell us, and there's so much more possibilities. But you do have to understand where people are coming from, and so I don't think behaviorism can, under, can explain things like ethics and the idea of sovereignty and why people value it. And that's what I think is the, the hopeful conclusion out of what you're all saying. From this. Is there anyone I've been missing who's had their hand up? All right, um, the last point, the second bite of the cherry here, and then we'll... Uh, Nico McDonald again. Well, very briefly to Jamie, yes, we've had this argument a lot about whether it, you know, what drives change and so on. The question is, what do you do about it, which was the question Carol hasn't answered yet. Uh, do, you pro do, you, do we reinvent politics that inspires people, engages them and creates mass politics again, or for the first time, uh, someone's argued? Or do we, you know, nationalise Facebook as um, Nick Cernak has, has advocated, which uh, I think Jeremy Corbyn should definitely advocate at least. And the second thing to Carol is, yes, maybe, um, you know, Facebook is fucking with our brains. Why is it not fucked with your brain? How are you so enlightened, <laughs> in, enlightened and we're not? Is it the great unwashed uh, masses who are just too stupid or too unmedia-educated? Uh, and maybe we should media-educate them, or maybe they're actually cleverer than you think. And on that note, um, I will ask each, each of our speakers in the same order in which they gave their introductions, respond to uh, one or two points you'd like to and give your concluding thoughts. Um, Carol, speak your brains. <laughs> um, well, it's totally fucked my brain. Along <laughs> I, can, I can assure you of that. I, I, was a, I was a feature writer who wrote nice celebrity interviews until a year ago, and I've gone down this weird, weird wormhole. Um, I thought your explanation of the ad tech system that underpins all this was brilliant, and, and that is it. There is these underlying structures um, that we are invisible to us and are powerful in ways that we don't fully understand, absolutely myself included. I am, um, um, a, you know, a, a fly in that web. I just want to come back... I just, um, I'm just going to come back on three points. Quickly. So, very quickly, changes in the media system, it's too soon to tell. Well, I don't think so. Journalism has been destroyed by the new technology giants, and there's no way of funding it, and it barely exists anymore. And it, I think that's a problem for our society, and I think that's a problem for democracy. I think that's a massive change. What do I want to see happening? I want total transparency. I want to know who's seeing what ads. I want those to be public. I want them to be archived. I want them to be accountable. I want to know who's paying for them. And uh, I'm not giving up on democracy. That's why I'm sitting here this morning rather than having a nice croissant and coffee in bed. I want to see the electoral laws change. There was a, there was, um, the LSE did a big study on this last year. And basically, they looked at the way that our electoral laws developed in the 19th century, most of them, um, deal with, these, with, the, with, the, with the, 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 the rise in digital campaigning, which has only happened over the past couple of years. And basically what they said is that there is absolutely no way of controlling the money anymore. And all of our electoral laws are based upon the idea of, of a level playing field that nobody can just buy influence and power. We control it. Now, that has gone out of the window. There is no way of controlling it anymore. And my concern about Cambridge Analytica is that it's owned by a politically motivated billionaire who poured money into our election, and we, we've got no way of seeing that, telling it, being accountable, etc. So I'll shut up now. Thank you. All right. <laughs>
Jamie. Well, just two two points. And the first is I think it's it would be good for everybody to consider how this debate would run out if if it were not about Trump and Brexit, but were about the other side using these tools to have won. And I think we might end up having quite a different set of people talking about it and in a very different way. Um, so I always try to sort of distinguish between sort of my personal political views on this and what is actually happening to elections. It's really important that we do that. And your point about machine learning, I think, is a really, a really important one. Um, I work on machine learning myself a little bit, and it, and it is going through remarkably quick improvements, uh, as you've said, and, it, and it's a sort of exponential improvement as well. And so all the things we are worrying about now, I think we'll be back here in five years' time, we'll be looking at a much improved system of micro-targeting and big data, and there'll be way more data and way more ways to target us with that data. So this is going to be, well, I think, one of the big pressing issues of the next few years. Okay. Oh. It wasn't a rousing thing, like. No, no, but because people clap, Carol, this means I'm going to have to yeah. tell you to stay in the room after Tim Andrews finished, rather than all run off. So, anyway, Simon. Yeah, very, very briskly, can I say I entirely agree with Carol that our uh, electoral um, uh, law is, um, and I'm a qualified agent, so I'm supposed to know it, um, is not fit for purpose and is overdue for reform. No question about that. It's not working. Even if we're not talking about this kind of stuff, it's not working. Look at the bus scandals. Look at the other kind of thing. The system is not, 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 not working. So, yeah, it needs changing. So I absolutely agree on this. Um, on, I, I, I've tried to talk about this mostly from the perspective of being a marketer rather than being a politician. Um, uh, I do think that there are some, some real questions about the... Um, the, the point that was just made by Jamie, that everybody is using this. It's not just um, uh, the right, if you want to call us that, uh, that is using And in fact, up till this election, if we look at the, from Howard Dean through um, to um, uh, uh, the two Obama campaigns, one, and Obama's campaigns were really very interesting because they were built on an Alinsky principle, so he tried to link um, uh, community activism with online activism, and I think that was, saying, and you see that reflected again with Corbyn, that same kind of that same kind of principle. Um, and 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 actually, if you look at that, then if there's a real problem in this, though, that does need, to, and I don't know the answer, it is fake news, and it is being used by all sides, from left and right, are consistently and dangerously creating and using fake news. And if you want to actually, far more for me, far more sinister. Than, than machine learning or targeting is that being combined with the creation of, of fake news. So there's one thing that we, we, need, we need to start thinking about how we deal with it. That's where we need to do, do it because uh, at the moment it's not quite running away with itself, but it is, you know, from, from, from squawk box on the left to the storm front on the right, they're all generating awful lies and put, throwing them out there and it, it really needs to be got to grips with. Timandra, but when she's finished and we applaud, stay in the room for a couple of announcements from me after that. But Timandra. Uh, okay. By big data, I don't just mean uh, masses of information and I don't just mean the technology that lets people process it. I think it's actually... It's, it's more a, a social phenomenon that uses that and is a way of viewing the world. And I think it's a problem because... It, it's a problem when it's used on human beings because it sees us as multidimensional data points 
to be uh, studied from the outside and understood and nudged into behaving in different ways for, for various motivations and by various people. And I think that's a real problem because if, if we regard ourselves and our fellow human beings in that way, then we, we completely diminish ourselves and anything like democracy is, is completely over. But for that reason, I think that if we put too much focus on how big data works in democracy as in other things, then we fall into the mirror image of that because then we also start to see ourselves just as data points who, who are subject to being nudged. And that's why, on the one hand, I think we should be very concerned about this and we should definitely look at how it works and who is using it and what for, but we should also remember that if we accept that view of the world as the way the world is, then we essentially have already accepted that view of ourselves as multidimensional data points. Uh, and that when we worry about politics, we should worry about the content of politics and the dearth of ideas and the abandonment of the aspiration to win people to ideas using our, our reason as well as our emotion. And that's why we should worry about big data, but we should also worry about worrying about big data. <laughs> okay. Thank you.